Welcome to the 433rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with J. Lawrence Matthews, author of the novel One Must Tell the Bees, Abraham Lincoln, and the Final Education of Sherlock Holmes. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jeffrey Matthews, author of the novel One Must Tell the Bees. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Great. If someone hasn't heard yet about your novel, One Must Tell the Bees, how would you describe the novel? It is historical fiction told as history. It features Abraham Lincoln and Sherlock Holmes. And it is the untold story of how Holmes met Lincoln in the last year of the Civil War, when he was uh, still quite a young man, not yet known as Sherlock, what he learned from Lincoln and about Lincoln and about America, really, in, in that tumultuous period that would stay with him the rest of his life, and how uh, he came to be enlisted in the ultimately in the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth, along with a freed slave named Abraham, who was his companion while he was in America. And helped track Booth down to the Garrett Barn and watch Booth. And it's told, as I said, it's told as history. It is very accurate to the history of the times, the personalities and the events that took place. And the tone, the narrative tone is this happened. And that's crucial because a key theme of the book is the importance of understanding our history before we try to rewrite it or erase the bad bits, which is something that's happening in America these days. So it's a story set in uh, largely in 1864-65 with a message for America today. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing One Must Tell the Bees? <laughs> Vividly, actually, yeah. There were two. There were They were two book titles, actually, that popped into my head over a period of a couple of years. This goes back about 10 years to 2009, 2010. I had just finished writing a book for McGraw-Hill, a nonfiction book called um, Pilgrimage to Omaha, which was about my uh, visits to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting that Warren Buffett hosts every year. I don't know if you've heard of it, Jeff. Yeah, I have. Actually. Yeah, it's a huge deal in, fin in the financial world where, where I came from. And I wrote a kind of a uh, Hunter S. Thompson-esque travelogue about going without the drugs and the guns, I should add, and why people go what they get out of it. And when I finished that, I thought, okay, I've written a book for McGraw-Hill. Why don't I write one for myself? And I, I started several mysteries and thrillers over the years that I, as a hobby, and I had, I always lost interest in them because the central character always ended up becoming, being like a dull version of myself. And I always got <laughs> I always got tired of it. I could never find that voice. And one day I was one morning I was in the shower and my mind was wandering as it tends to do in the shower. And death of Sherlock Holmes popped into my head. And I thought that would be a fun story to write. I'd always thought it would be interesting and fun to try to write a true Holmes story like the originals. Um, with that voice, that distinctive voice. And I was always a little disappointed when I go to the Barnes and Noble and look over those Sherlock Holmes mysteries they have next to the originals. They'd have a great premise, 
but the voice would always be a little off, a modern voice with old words in it. Anyway, I just always thought it'd be fun to try my own hand at it and see if I could make one that was as interesting and, and compelling as, as an original. So I started on it. I set it in 1918, the end of World War One, because Holmes, the last we'd heard of him, was the beginning of World War One. That was his last case. I set it in the South Downs because uh, Holmes had retired there to tend his bees and to write his manuscript on, on rational deduction. And I knew that the death of Holmes would involve those bees and that manuscript. And I just had to figure out how to get Dr. Watson down from London to take part in, uh, in their final adventure and then write the story of the death of Sherlock Holmes. And I noodled on that for a couple of years. I wasn't getting very far because I had a very full-time job. And then again, one morning in the shower, again, mind was wandering. And this time, Sherlock Holmes meets Abraham Lincoln popped into my head. And I'm a Civil War buff, and I thought, wow, that would be fun. That would be interesting. I wonder if it could have happened. And I pretty quickly figured out that it, it could have happened. Holmes would have been younger than he's generally thought to be, but it would have happened when he was young, very young. Lincoln would have been in the last year of his life. It would have happened in America because Lincoln never went to England, of course. And it would involve the war, obviously. Why else would a young Englishman go to America in 1864? And it would probably involve chemistry because Holmes was a great chemist. That was his hobby as a detective. I had these two ideas and two, I thought they were two different books, but as I worked on them, uh, I realized that they were really one book with two intertwined stories. And that is why one must tell, and they came out as One Must Tell the Bees, Sherlock, Abraham Lincoln and the Final Adventure of Sherlock Holmes. And the book starts, it opens in uh, October, 1918. Dr. Watson's in the train headed to the South Downs to his friend Sherlock Holmes in his valise. He's got two documents. One is the book on rational deduction that Holmes has been promising to, and finally sent to Watson. The other is a note Holmes attached to it saying, Watson, I've relapsed. I'm terribly addicted to a very malignant class of opiates. And in, in, in this time of lucidity, I, I call on your aid. Please bring your medical kit and come at once. And so Watson is racing to his friend's aid. And while he's doing that, he takes out the manuscript and starts reading. And what he discovers is, is that the, it begins with the untold story of Holmes's early life, including this trip to America uh, in 1864 as a young chemist uh, a research assistant for the DuPont Gunpowder Works to study uh, smokeless gunpowder, which was a big, big effort in that in those days. And of course, DuPont made half the gunpowder for the Union armies. And this begins the Holmes meets Lincoln story. And it totally immerses Watson in the story. By the time he gets to Holmes's house, he's read the story. He comes back to 1918. The book returns to 1918 and now begins the uh, death of Sherlock Holmes part of the story. And it goes back and forth from 1918 back to 1865, but that's the gist of it. And those were the two uh, prompts for the book. And I should mention a third. I had a third insight along the way, which is when I started to talk to people about what I was doing, I had decided early on that anytime anyone asked me what I was doing, I would tell them flatly. I wasn't going to 
pretend I wasn't working on this book. I know a lot of writers don't like to talk about what they're doing, but I wanted the pressure. I wanted people asking me what I was doing and how's the book coming because I, I didn't want to slink away from it after a couple of years. And what I learned, Jeff, by telling people that I was working on a book, what are you working on? Sherlock Holmes meets Abraham Lincoln. I learned that most people think that Sherlock Holmes was a real guy. Back. He was such a vivid character, and through all the fictionalizations and the TV shows and the movies, people, even older people who grew up reading the original stories, think he was a real guy. And people would say, "Oh, so I didn't know he went to America. I, I or was he was he alive when Lincoln was alive?" Or, and that fascinated me, and it I immediately realized a change in the tone of the story. I realized I could put. Holmes in the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth. And I could tell it as history. And that changed everything. And that's when the narrative became, this happened. And at the same time as I had made that that pivot, I these this thing was going on out in the real world of statues being torn down and Twitter mobs defacing our history. And I thought, I'm going to lean into that. And what better rational observational voice than Sherlock Holmes to bring to this discussion. And so that's how it all came about. Long, short question, long answer, but that's it. What was your experience of writing One Must Tell the Bees compared to those earlier thrillers and mysteries that you mentioned that you had tried your hand at? Oh, it was it was way easier and way harder, I guess I would say. The voices are so distinct. You can't once you get those voices in your head, when you're going wrong, what's not true? Whereas when I was making up people and making up situations, it was harder. It was harder to maintain that voice. It was harder to maintain a storyline. It was harder to understand what people would do next. Anytime I got lost in this book, Jeff, and there were some times where I would hit a wall and, and I would just stop forcing it and just let the characters talk in my head. And they would figure it out. It was fascinating. Way easier, but way harder in the end because I actually finished the book and it, it was a, it's 179,000 words. It's not a short book. What are your earliest memories of reading Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories? You know, my earliest memory, I'm not exactly sure how I discovered, except that we probably had the books around the house, but I had been a fan of the Hardy Boys when I was a little kid, and I loved mysteries. But when I read Holmes, it sort of—it was the day I put away childish things. It was—it opened this whole adult, messy adult world to me. Men had affairs, and they tried to get rid of their wives, or they tried to kill their stepdaughters for inheritance, or they—you didn't have cocaine needles in the Hardy Boy rooms, right? You know, it was a real eye opener. And I guess the earliest story that I remember, and I do remember this quite vividly, the one that I loved the most, probably because I, when I was a kid, I was into, and it was the, the Speckled Band, which is about a Indian a doctor who's been to India and returns with all these wild Indian animals and pets, and he's got a, a pit viper that he trains to kill his stepdaughter for the inheritance money. And that story really compelled me. And here's the interesting thing. It's funny you bring that up. Because as I think about it, that was the first time I realized that writers make stuff up. <laughs> and, and the way I figured that out was I was reading 
something somehow I read something about how well this guy I read a story that, that talked about how ridiculous this Arthur Conan Doyle story was because the doctor in the story, as you'll probably remember, trained trained this pit viper using whistles and rewarding it with a bowl of milk. And the story and I, I read somebody talking about how ridiculous that is because snakes can't hear and they don't drink milk. Right. What fascinated me, Jeff, what I realized, okay, it couldn't have happened, but it didn't matter to me. It was still a really good story. Yeah, it was so well written. Yeah, and I and that's kind of when I realized, oh, okay. So they make things up and they can even make stuff up that couldn't happen, but it's still a great story. And that may have been the first spark, now that I think of it, of what writers really do. Do you have plans to write another Sherlock Holmes novel or is this it for you? No, I do. I've always been fascinated with the three years that he was thought to be, and he returns to, he's, he, when Arthur Conan Doyle killed him off by having him battle uh, Professor Moriarty above the Reichenbach Falls, and Watson thinks that he's fallen into the falls and has died. And three years later, Holmes turns up in Watson's surgery, and Holmes tells him of what he's been doing. And what he's been doing was he traveled into, in the guise of a Norwegian explorer. He visited the Dalai Lama. He then went to Mecca, Khartoum, and back to the continent. And to me, that's a fascinating journey. It's a very spiritual journey. And wouldn't you want to know what he talked about with the Dalai Lama? Yes, I'm going to, that's where I'm going next. And I think, again, it's going to be told as history, and, but it will have him in Mecca, no doubt in disguise. It'll have him doing, getting into some adventure with the Dalai Lama, no doubt. And it's going to be something, it, it's, my tentative title is On the Edge of Revelation. Sherlock Holmes, the Dalai Lama, and the Great Game. And the Great Game was the diplomatic chess match that was going on at that time in the early 1890s between Russia and England. And they were both dueling for supremacy. And Tibet was where they, they met because the Tsar was moving south from Russia towards India. And the British were freaked out that he might extend his influence into India. So they were trying to move up into Tibet. And they clashed in Tibet. And that's what's going to happen next. Was it a big shift for you from working as a business executive to writing a Sherlock Holmes novel? It was a big shift, but it was not it was not something I had never expected. I had when I got out of college, I wanted to write. I wanted to be James and for those of your listeners who don't remember him, he was the Garrison Keeler of the 40s and and 50s. He wrote short humor and I loved his work and I would, when I started on Wall Street, I would, by day, go to go to Merrill Lynch um, and follow the stock market. And by night, I would sit in my studio apartment and write short humor, send it around. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
to the magazines. In those days, that was before the internet. That was back when you sent things with a self-addressed stamped envelope. When I would get it back from the New Yorker, I would rewrite it, send it to the Atlantic. When I got it back from them, I'd rewrite it, send it to the um, Harpers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I always had two or three pieces out. And in the space of two years of doing this, I had three pieces accepted. One at the Boston Globe, one at the New York Times, and one at uh, NPR. It was read on NPR with Susan Stamberg. And with those three pieces, I earned $150. (laughs) The New York Times was the only one that paid. And I realized, okay, I'm going to focus on the stock market thing because I got to raise a family. I always loved writing. And as I said, I never stopped doing it. And fortunately for me, in 2005, in, in, in conjunction with my business, which was following stocks, I started a book called it Jeff Matthews is Not Making This Up. I stole that from Dave Barry. I'm a big Dave Barry fan. And essentially, I was writing short financial columns with a serious intent but with a humorous, it was really writing short humor, except about stocks and the stock market. And, and I loved it. I loved the immediacy of it. I loved the feedback you got. I loved that you got feedback from all over the world. Not that I had a global audience, understand. On the internet, people find you from anywhere. Sure. And, and I loved that. And out of, it was out of that blog that my book for McGraw-Hill came about, because I had written, I had gone to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting in 2008 and I had such a great time. I ended up taking 30 pages of notes that I wrote a very long, I think it was a 10 or 11 part blog series about it. And I got a call from McGraw-Hill saying, would you want to turn this into a book? And heck yes, I've always wanted to write a book. And here was my opportunity. So that was the way I- And what was the name of that book? Again? It, it was called Pilgrimage to Omaha. Actually, it was called Pilgrimage to Warren Buffett's Omaha a hedge fund manager's dispatches from blah, 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 blah. McGraw-Hill wanted to put every keyword into the title they could, but I think of it as pilgrimage to Omaha. And it was a very good experience. It was not as, it was not as, what's the right word? Um, it was not, it was a little slower than I, I would have liked. It was a little, I was used to the quickness and, and immediacy of writing online. Sure. And, but it got me there. And I learned a whole lot and I had a book published. I ended up buying the rights back to it and then turning that into two ebooks over the next couple of years with a friend of mine, um, because I really love the, the power of the internet and the ability to write things that are a little more current. But that all went into, you know, that was such great preparation for writing One Must Tell the Bees. And it was, so you can see it was a more natural transition than it might appear from the outside. Uh, although, sure. although I have to add, writing a nonfiction, writing a fiction book, is nine hundred times harder than writing a, a nonfiction book. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? First thing I would do is read Stephen King's book on writing. You're a Stephen King fan, I think. Yes, I am. Have you read that his book on writing? Yes, it's sitting next to my bed. Okay. Fact. So you read it more than once too. I find myself going back to that just for confidence. It's a because it's a very encouraging book. What I like about it is it's funny, it's interesting. He had a, he worked like a dog, but his the tone of the book is 
I did this and you can do it too. And here's how, here's some useful advice. And I really like that. I think it's, it's very helpful and encouraging. It, it won't turn you off. And the exact opposite is I was just reading John McPhee's book on writing. I don't know if you've read that one. Uh, I have not. Okay. I think it's called Draft Number Four. And he's a great writer. And it's a fascinating book. I would hold off on that if you're just starting out and you haven't got a voice and you haven't got a system because he's he does, has a way of plotting his books that is so esoteric. I still don't understand it. And it'll intimidate you. Stephen King, on the other hand, his thing is you get you get two ideas that, and you put them together. You get a third idea that's never happened and bam, you're off and running. Again, I, I think that's a fabulous way to start. And then as far as anything I could contribute, to the discussion, it would be some nothing you haven't heard from anybody else every day. But my reasoning is slightly different. It's not just that if you write every day, you accumulate words. And if you write every day, you will eventually finish that book. That's true. But what I found that by writing every day, and once I was retired and totally focused on One Must Tell the Bees, I wrote every day. And what I learned was that it's what Hemingway talks about in A Movable Feast, which is that your subconscious is always thinking about it. And I can't tell you how many problems I fixed or my subconscious fixed while I was in line at the grocery store or brushing my teeth or taking a shower. That's always a big one for me. And even asleep. I I have probably at least a dozen texts to myself from when I was deep into the weeds on One Must Tell the Bees at about five in the morning where I would sort of come half out of sleep with a phrase or a word or some idea of what to do that had been gnawing at me. And I would text it to myself and go back to sleep. In fact, the last two lines of the book came that way, and they never changed from the moment I texted them to myself. So if you're writing every day, it's always in the back of your mind, no matter what you're doing. And if you think you, if you, think you can't write every day and you want to save it up for the weekend because your time is not your own, you're an airline pilot or you bust tables or something, the problem with saving it up for the weekend or for a vacation or when you got the time is that by the time you sit down... Uh, to write again, you're going to have to get familiar again with the voices, get familiar again with the story, and you're going to have problems that you probably haven't fixed that you're going to, that are staring at you. And if you write every day, your subconscious will take care of those. And you you can you, you can find a and don't make it hard on yourself. Don't say I've got to do 500 words a day or 2,000 words. Write anything you can. Carve out a half hour. Don't look at Facebook as much or Twitter or whatever. You can do that and write every day and you'll be amazed at the, the, the power of your mind. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoy? You'll recognize this one. The most recent novel was uh, A Negro and an Ofei by Danny Gardner, who you interviewed. And I thought it was such a fabulous interview. I've listened to it several times. His And the voice of that character, Elliot Caprice, is so fabulous. And that's the most recent novel I read, and I recommend it to anybody. I had not honestly done a lot of fiction reading while I was writing the book. In fact, almost none, except... So what I did was, for two or three years, while I was really in the weeds on One Must Tell the Bees, 
I listened to or read nothing but Sherlock except the occasional old favorite Dubliners by James Joyce or uh, Great Gatsby or something to remind myself of what great writing is. But I didn't want I, I, I didn't want to get any other voices in my head. And the Sherlock voice is so distinct, and it's not my voice. So that's not my natural way of writing. But interestingly, once I handed it off to my editor a year ago, all of a sudden I was like, it was wide open territory. I could read anything I wanted to. And I had this weird craving to read old fiction that I'd never gotten around to. It just I had a book by Graham Greene on my shelf since college, uh, a burnt out case, this little paperback. And I just said, oh, I can read this. And I pulled it off the shelf and read it. And it was fascinating because having written a book from start to finish, I understood a lot better what he was doing than I would have if I'd read it when I was supposed to in college. And I thought, okay, I'm going to keep going. And I, I read a lot of early early Fitzgerald, a lot of Poe, a lot of Chekhov, Somerset Moms of Human Bondage, books like that that I'd never gotten around to. And actually, mm-hmm. Somerset Mom put the gabosh on it because... That was a slog. And I, I realized there were a lot of words for words sake books back then. There's a reason some of these books aren't on the bestseller list anymore. But the checkoff was fabulous. And I'm sorry I had never read him when I was supposed to in college. What a, what a, what a voice he had. And, and so that was a lot of fun. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel, One Must Tell the Bees? Sure. JLawrenceMatthews.com. Matthews with two T's. That will lead you to Facebook, also to Twitter. I do have a Twitter handle, although, as you might imagine, I'm not the biggest fan of Twitter. I think it's really degraded the national dialogue, and I really don't communicate that way. But anybody that has a question and wants to talk to me, Matthews at gmail.com will get me as well. That's great. Again, we've been speaking with Jeffrey Matthews, author of the novel One Must Tell the Bees. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Jeffrey, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Great. And now stay tuned for a brief audio excerpt from One Must Tell the Bees, Abraham Lincoln and the Final Education of Sherlock Holmes by Jeffrey Matthews, read by Thomas Judd. In this excerpt, it is Lincoln's second appearance meeting with young Holmes and occurs on the morning after Lincoln's re-election in 1864. A Most Intimate Audience Upon reaching the bottom of the stairs, we tiptoed past the library and made our way to the dining room, only to find the gaslight turned up and, to my great surprise, Eddie Stanton seated at the table, in uniform, a cup of coffee at his elbow, and his rifle leaned against the wall nearby. He had been absorbed in a magazine, which he abruptly closed and slid beneath his cap when he noticed us. Then he rose and greeted me in a friendly fashion, without a glance at Abraham. "'Father is in the study with the President on some serious business,' he said in a low conspiratorial whisper. "'They stayed all night at the telegraph office for the election reports.' The results were delayed on account of winter storms in the West. He nodded at Abraham. Found yourself a pickaninny, I see. I could have struck the lout, but a sudden commotion from the hallway caused Eddie to snap to attention just as the door opened. It was President Lincoln. He was glancing backwards over his shoulder at a flustered Ellen Stanton, who was in her nightdress and had evidently been urging the President to remain in the study where he could be served his coffee. I thank you, good lady, 
but your husband is occupied with a pressing issue that needs a response, and I smell breakfast being cooked. Besides, it's cramped in there, and I need to stretch out a bit. The president had twisted himself around, and a look of surprise crossed his face as he caught sight of the three of us standing at attention. Oh, no, Mrs. Stanton cried, seeing us now. You boys mustn't be here. Oh, yes, they must, the president exclaimed as a broad smile overcame the deeply etched lines of care and worry. Surely your cook has got bacon and cornbread enough for me and these hungry young men. Mrs. Stanton wrung her hands, her face a mask of indecision. Yes, of course, your excellency. Mr. President will do, he said, eyeing us thoughtfully. If you'll see how the cook is making out, Ellen, I will set myself here and become a little more familiar with this pair. He nodded at me and Abraham. Yes, your... Yes. She disappeared into the kitchen, talking to herself, while the president chuckled and tossed his stovepipe hat upon the table, where it happened to displace young Eddie's cap, revealing the magazine beneath. Eddie snatched up the publication and stuffed it inside his jacket while attempting to salute. A wry smile replaced the jovial look upon the president's face. At ease, son. Drink your coffee and get back to that, uh, literature you're always studying. Young Eddie flushed crimson, and he remained at attention as the great man, in his kindly way, changed the topic entirely. You know, Eddie, my boy Tad and I watched from the window while you and the other guards voted yesterday, and I meant to thank you for your ballot. He let out a high-pitched laugh and turned to me with those thick eyebrows arched high, a look of merriment in his eyes. Now, sir, you are familiar to me. The house guest I met on the porch here some months ago. I thought so. He held out his hand, the texture of which was thick and coarse as I had remembered it. You had something to do with tracking those gunpowder thieves, I understand. <laughs> Don't look surprised. Mr. Stanton speaks quite highly of you. I was too flustered to do anything more than nod my head at this, Watson. He winked and turned to Abraham, who was standing beside me, open-mouthed, eyes big as saucers. And who is your friend here? He reached for Abraham's hand. What is your name, son? Abraham Mars. Lincoln smiled. Abraham, I am pleased to make your acquaintance. I'm told that quite a few thousands of your brethren have been given my name. I think it's the finest compliment I have ever received. He let go Abraham's hand, pulled out a chair and sat down, one arm resting upon the chair back and one leg thrown over his other leg. Although, in truth, it may be the only one. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. 
probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.